You're listening to episode six. Hey there, Business Generals family. Welcome to another super episode of the Business Generals podcast where I feature amazing guests and I ask in-depth questions about their entrepreneurial journey. You know, my belief is that it doesn't matter how your journey in life started. It's not that important because great or small, the important thing is how you finish. So whatever your situation today, I want you to know that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to chase your dreams. In today's show, family, I dig into how it all started for our feature guests, how they have built their brand, and I even get into all the juicy details about their big challenges, their growth moments, and all their big breakthroughs. So it's going to be an amazing show. I actually selfishly started this podcast because I love to hear how entrepreneurs did it, and I wanted to ask the questions for myself. So really, I am the number one student. So Get ready for amazing coaching tips, family, to help you maximize your business dreams. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Generals Podcast, where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. Davis Mutaba here, your host. Super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. Daniel Mumby. Daniel, are you ready to share your entrepreneurial story? Yes, I am. Good morning, David. How are you? I am well, thank you. Daniel Mumby is known as the startup guy and co-founder of the Startup Foundation, a startup accelerator for professionals. He talks, writes on, and invests in disruptive innovation. After 20 years in corporate life, Daniel caught the startup bug. He has since founded and built and launched 15 ventures, all innovative startups in e-commerce, hospitality, social media, networking, logistics, financial services, and four impact ventures. Daniel, before we talk business, perhaps just take 30 seconds to tell us who is Daniel Monley, a little bit about your non-business background. Well, Davis, for the benefit of your audience, I'm no longer what you might call a whiz kid. So I'm uh, 49, and I've got a, a long career, as you just described, but Wow, actually, when you read it back, sounds pretty exciting. Um, I learned to code when I was 15. Um, I could code in five languages, and then something happened. I lost my way, and then it took me a little while, a couple of years, to get back on track, which was resulted from the benefit of some really good mentoring. One of the things I discovered, though, was that coding is not entrepreneurship. So there's, there's a lot of talk around tech and innovation at the moment about people learning to code. Coding is an entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship. So um, tech is just a mechanism for service delivery. So uh, one of the things that I'm really keen on sharing with people is about getting this well-rounded perspective about what it takes to build a great ventures. Um, and, th- and that's essentially my reason to air tray or my mission is to help to inspire, develop and invest in people to become successful entrepreneurs, not to code or not to create tech platforms or what have you. It's about recognising that, that building great ventures and creating great value and helping people really does take such a, a well-rounded skill set. So tell us a bit more about where you're based and family and where you grew up, etc. just in brief terms. Well, so I grew up um, uh, on the wrong side of the tracks in the outer suburbs and then uh, aced school. School was never a problem for me. Homework was a problem. And then I went to a private school and um, and two things were really remarkable about that. Actually three because I'm now back working with that school helping lots of clever 15 year old kids. But at that time because I was from the wrong side of the tracks and I felt like I was a bit of a fish out of water. But the interesting thing about that was 
that they also had probably the best computer lab in Australia at that time. And I'm talking the early 80s. So, you know, the Apple IIe was only, or the Apple II was only two years old and, and I was working in a lab that had a dozen of them. And so I got exposure or access to coding, at, you know, at that age of 15 that, um, that most people in Australia didn't have. Um, so I was a digital native before anybody even knew what the word was. So, so that was really interesting because it gave me this grounding in what was possible. And, and I thought it was the capacity to use technology to, to scale or to build and to test ventures in, now is at an, on an unprecedented scale. But it's been, it's been part of my life now really for the last 30 years. What did you find out then? How long have you been in full-time business for yourself, Daniel? Well, I left in... Um, I've had a couple of interesting life challenges along the way, and I think I've demonstrated at the capacity to fail that everything is completely possible. It's a lot harder to succeed than it is to fail. It's very easy to fail, um, and I've demonstrated that. I've got four kids uh, by two marriages. You know, I had a successful corporate career, which was going along really great, and I created an internal venture, which still generates about $10 million a year for every year and has done since I left in 2000. Unfortunately, I didn't learn how to protect that. Um, as a corporate entrepreneur, there are a whole set of special sets of knowledge you need around owning a slice of, uh, of that. Um, I left in 2000 to build another venture. That took me through till about 2002 before I realised that I couldn't build that. So I went back to corporate life for another couple of years and then I left in November 2004 and, and haven't been back since and I think at that stage uh, I got remarried and which was you know lovely and then I ended up you know getting quite good at building ventures and at one stage I think I was heading up two not-for-profits um, I was building two other ventures and I was a full-time work-from-home dad at the same time so one of the really interesting things about when you start building ventures and, you know, that doesn't work and you move on to the next one and that doesn't work or it does work and you move on to the next one is that you very quickly learn after about the second or the third or the fourth what really matters in building a venture and what doesn't. So you can accelerate the pace. And I like to think of the Elon Musk example as a really good one. Um, yeah, once you Once you know what works... You know, it's really, really easy to go and build a SpaceX and a, and a solar city and a Tesla home and a Tesla car and a Hyperloop um, because you know what matters and what doesn't. And, you know, you, you just don't do the stuff that's irrelevant. So I want to encourage your audience to actually think about, you know, what is it that they've actually learned from their careers around entrepreneurship and how they can apply that learning to the next one. And, and also how they can make that transition quicker, you know, picking out what your go and no-go points are and when you're building a venture and then... Sometimes you just can't get to success from where you are with what you've got. So being able to draw a line in the sand and say, yep, no, next one, you know, go back to work, get maybe to corporate life or whatever it is that you're doing um, and refill the coffers and get ready and prepared for the next one because you'll be able to do that quicker and faster. Yeah. Daniel, talk to me about the journey um, as an entrepreneur coming out of 20 years of corporate. I know that was a bit start and stop at some points, but overall, how did that conversation happen for you in your mind and how did you find that exit? Take us just through some of those key moments of your story. Well, I, even back when I was 15, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I remember, I remember when I was 15 or 16 and I actually had these T-shirts printed up and uh, I've never admitted this to anyone, so this is exclusive. Um, but it was, you know, I had T-shirts printed up called DVM Software, which are my initials. And, and even back then, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and using code or technology. So, yes, it was a little bit stop-start. 
I was good in corporate, but I found that I wasn't particularly, sorry, I was good in my corporate role, but I wasn't necessarily a particularly good fit for a corporate machine. So um, I spent a couple of years doing some consulting work around small businesses and, and medium-sized and even some large businesses as well. And I realised that whilst being a, a consultant is a hard and lonely road, you know, being that lone wolf from home, you know, as many consultants are, there was a there was something in the middle that I was looking to try and create. And I think it was it wasn't about working for somebody else, it wasn't a working about somebody else's system or a retail store. It was I've got some stuff in my head that I can see. I can imagine it built and my, the challenge or the journey for me is to learn how to deliver on that which is I'm conceptualising in my head. And I think this is a lot of the challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs. They see it in their head. Getting it out and turning it into reality is the hard thing. You know, the inspiration's easy. It's the perspiration bit that's really, really challenging. Does that, does that make sense, Davis? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that, so an answer to your original question about, um, about the journey, I think, I think for great entrepreneurs, it's already in them. They're already there, that person. It's just got to be brought out and, and, you know, knock the rough edges off and polish it all up. What's the example of Michelangelo that, you know, that was, was asked, you know, five centuries ago about how did he, you know, create the great works of art from the blocks of marble? And he, and he, the simple answer was really easy. All I have to do is chip away the, the you know, the, the, the great statue is already there. All I have to do is chip away the bits that aren't part of the statue. So, Daniel, just take, take us through a little bit about how um, your business revenue is structured today, what you consider your core revenue pillars are and how that looks like. Um, so I've got some really great and wise mentors, and one of them, the best, in fact, I've known since I was 16, is a, a gentleman called Neville Christie. And Neville encouraged um, or inspired me to uh, create multiple revenue streams. As, a, as an entrepreneur, no one source of revenue is actually going to be enough, and, and he espouses seven. So um, I've been building that source of revenue stream from from speaking, from uh, authoring. So I've got my first book about to launch, and I've got four more to follow beyond that, probably in fairly quick succession. The private mentoring that I do with aspiring founders and a bit of coaching, and then we've got multiple revenue streams and multiple products from uh, the Startup Foundation products, which are coming out shortly, uh, in fact, called The Starting Block. So we've got... Some video series, so there's some, for me, there'll be as the host, because you have to pay a host, so I'll be earning some, some hosting fees from doing that. And then also a little bit of training, and then, you know, ideally with our venture capital firm, I'll, I'll earn some, some carry or some, uh, success fees out of that once we've invested in some successful founders. So, um, multiple revenue streams are always the way to go. You should never try and rely on one, um, and seven is a really good number to aspire to. You know, and they don't have to be huge revenue sources. You might ever only make a thousand dollars a year from writing or from books, but one tends to lead to the other. So by writing, and you've seen my LinkedIn profile, I think it currently stands at about fifty-three thousand followers. Um, I have some very, very simple formulas about revenue. So if you want deal flow, then you need lead flow, and to get deal flow is a quite a simple formula. It's lead flow plus products plus empathy. To get lead flow, you need reach and audience and uh, exposure. So it's not rocket surgery to figure out how to create new products. And I always, I'm a big fan of saying, if you want to sell something, you'd better be of value and you better have someone to sell it to. So before you build your products, build your reach, build your exposure, build your audience, and test and build your value with that audience. And writing 
and speaking of good ways to do that. Not only can they generate additional income for you, but they can actually set you up, you know, very quickly and launch additional new products because you've, you've got people that are interested and that value what you're talking about and that care about your message and that have expressed an interest in that which you're specialist at. And that applies in every field. You've got 53,000 followers at Connections. That's huge. How, how, how have you, in the most recent times, been monetizing your LinkedIn profile, if at all? That's a really useful question for your audience, Davis. Um, so I spent probably, I've been in full-time in the startup space now since 2011. And back at that time, I had a couple of ventures that hadn't worked. I had a marriage collapse and, and uh, you know, I literally lost my way. And I had two startups at the same time collapse as well as uh, just missed out on getting elected to a high political office. So I got involved in the startup space trying to figure out what it was that I didn't know that I didn't know. And in 2011 in, in Australia, the startup space, the ecosystem virtually didn't exist. So I spent four years from a clean LinkedIn slate. I spent four years networking and, you know, up to about 2015. And, and I think just going to meetups and pressing the flash and engaging, connecting with people. And I went from about zero to a thousand. Now, the reason why that's relevant is I also, you know, in 2014, I started writing. It took me probably 12 months to find my voice. But from 2000 and from May of 2015 to November of 2015, I went from a thousand connections to 6,000. And I was trying to figure out whether I could validate an offering or an audience. Sorry, validate an offering for an audience. And once I found my voice, which really was about November of last year, and then I went from in the next six months, I went from six thousand to thirty-six thousand because I, I just got I didn't get more prolific on writing. I think I just got better at writing, and I got better at honing in on the problems that people were interested in and cared about. So I think to, to come back to the answer to your question, so having an audience to sell something to is a really really big deal. But it's you know it's key. It really is key and critical to selling. And I don't care whether you use Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter or what have you, you know, you've got to find a way to engage your audience and test your product before you spend all your time and your money on building a product. So does that, does that sort of get to the answer to the number of that question? So you've talked about the audience building, which is great, which I was going to get to. Now, how do you, how do you manage to monetize part of that? Ah, so, so that's, that's the monetization part is actually the easiest part. Um, I think, it's building the audience. Um, you know, a lot of people say put out a minimum viable product and test it with a frontier audience. Well, I, you know, I sort of hate that because I think that it gives people a false sense of, um, of, of monetizing. You know, if you've got 10 people that you're testing a pro- product with, so you've you built an audience and then you create a product and you identify a perceived value or an opportunity or a need or a gap in the market, you know, whatever method you use, testing that with 10 people and, you know, minimum viable product is about does anybody care, does anybody interested, are they going to use it? But with, when you build an MVP to monetize that, you're typically going to alienate about half of your audience. So I love the concept of the product called minimum lovable product because an MVP doesn't give you stickiness or virality. It doesn't really tell you whether the business is viable. It only tells you whether the product might be used by somebody. But minimum lovable product gives you uh, stickiness. It gives you churn. It gives you those three little words that you want to hear from an audience that tell you that they're not only going to use it, but they're probably going to pay for it and they're going to share it and they're going to tell their friends. And those three little words are either... I love this, or that's really cool. And so when you're building a product, you should be looking for those three little words. 
And a minimum lovable product is not actually that hard to build. It's actually about more strategic design and more research before you get into the product mode, and it's about understanding your audience and your market better. So the best way to monetize um, your audience or to create additional revenue streams is to spend more time focusing on the needs of your audience. And I love the quote by Einstein, and this is an actual Einstein quote, uh, that, he, that he said, I think it was in 42, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem. And I think so many people, when they're building sort of ventures, spend so much time thinking about the solution that they forget who they're building for and what the problem is they're trying to solve. So spend more time on the problem, circle around it. You know, I've been circling around the problems of my space and what I'm doing with the starting block or startup foundation for probably 15 or 20 years. I just didn't know I was. And I spent three years in full-time design of the product. Sometimes we've got to really just spend time, more time thinking about the problem instead of going, aha, I've got the answer. What's the question? <laughs> and again, that's a, I know that's a long answer to what's an interesting question, but it's, but it's the fundamental flaw that most um, aspiring entrepreneurs make or the fundamental mistake that they make is that they, they come up with the answer and then they don't focus on the problem enough. Um, so how I monetize a list is I circle around the problem again and again and again and again and again until I start um, spiralling in closer and closer to it, but I've seen it from all its perspectives. I haven't just assumed that I know the answer. I really go and look for it. Mm. And then are you depending on people to reach out to you as you're communicating your message and then you kind of have you know, half an hour sessions with them over the phone and work out what they need and then take it from there? Is that how you... Your, your funnel works? Yeah, I, I, do, I do a little bit of that, but I've been you know, interested in the, um, the challenges around our startup ecosystem uh, where we're effectively building startups one at a time. And so I was really interested in, you know, I'm a student of history. I love history. I love architecture. Um, but I was interested in other people throughout history that had figured out how to scale their industries. And I love the example of Henry Ford. Now, Henry Ford was a quite a clever guy. You know, the... the really the first guy to productize the, the manufacturer of automobiles. Um, and since, you know, 1878, I think it was, when Carl, was it Carl Benz, um, discovered the, or effectively created the combustion uh, automobile, you know, there was an automotive industry, but people were making cars one at a time. And I'm using this as a parallel. Um, we have a startup architecture or ecosystem that builds startups one at a time. So I wanted to discover a way... Um, where we could do what Henry Ford did to the to um, uh, to cars, what you know, what we can do with startups, and that's really about stopping building startups and starting to build startup production lines or facilities. So I love the one-on-one coaching and the conversations that are done. I think we just need to figure out how to help entrepreneurs get to audiences and markets quicker and do them faster, so that we can take that learning and then feed that that. that that back in as a mechanism or as a feedback loop. And Y Combinator does that very, very well. Um, you know, with their, their, they've got such good metrics now coming out of the startups that are working um, that they're able to actually feed that back into the next round or the next cohort. We don't have that in Australia. We haven't figured out how to do that. So, you know, uh, my view is that whilst I'm happy to do the one-on-one coaching sessions, we need bigger, we need faster, we need better quality learning and we need better successes to be able to then feed that in and help more startup founders. And we need to do that in a different way and it can't be in the way that we've done it before. So 
one-on-one coaching works, but it's not enough. Fantastic. I want to just pivot now to um, something you've touched on as we've been talking here in this show. Um, You said it's much easier to fail um, than it is to succeed, and I wanted to touch on fear of failure. You've you've touched on a couple of um, times when things really went tough for you. You had a couple of startup failures, had some personal personal um, things that you were going through. What do you think has been your worst moment in business and how do you approach them, fear of failure? So I'm not sure I've ever got over fear of failure. It's still, um, for most entrepreneurs, it's something that they'll have to live with every day. It's, I think the coping mechanisms of learning, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're successful or a failure. Every, every success I've ever spoken to still lives or resonates with that concept of, you know, am I really a success? What is success? And, you know, one day everybody's going to discover that I'm a fraud and I'm not really successful at all. I'm just this, still like this scared little kid that, you know, that's, that this 10 year old that has no idea doing what they're doing. And, and, and I think most successful people will, will admit that. Uh, privately, um, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable and admitted publicly, but, you know, e- even if you, you know, create the world's greatest venture and, and, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, most entrepreneurs do feel like they're just, you know, every day is just scrabbling and, you know, they're still trying to figure out how, you know, what it is. Um, so I don't know about, I don't know that it's actually possible to overcome that fear of failure. I think, um, it's about being able to demonstrate courage in the face of fear. Um, and courage is action. Courage is, is confronting your fears and pushing forward. So I don't know that we ever overcome them, but I think we can demonstrate courage in the face of our fears. Um, and I have um, probably over my life discovered about 42 significant truths about myself and about how I interact with the world, which are true of many other founders. And I call them my 42 laws of startup success. Um, and they operate as a really good framework. I'm not going to give you all 42. I think I've published them on LinkedIn, but I'll give you the three that matter because they're the, the three that help me overcome the fear as, as it's relevant to the question. Rule number, uh, sorry, law number one. And by the way, they're not, they're not rules. Rules are made to be broken. That's why we're entrepreneurs. These are laws and you don't break laws because uh, you end up going to jail. <laughs> um, so law number one, enjoy what you do. Be happy doing it. You know, if you can't love what you're doing, um, go and do something else, anything else. Uh, law number two, never bet more than you can afford to lose. And and I've made this mistake a couple of times, and many do, and and that's where you effectively are betting your relationship or you're drawing down on your mortgage or you're borrowing against credit cards or doing other stupid stuff that actually is going to set you up for failure. It's a bad mistake, um, guilty of a couple of times, um, but it sets you up for failure, which is what, you know, that fear of failure is then the thing that's going to eat you alive. So if you don't do that, you're actually more likely to set yourself up for success. And law number three is the really critical one. Figure out how to stay in the game between ventures. So if you bundle those three together, loving what you're doing, um, not betting more than you can afford to lose, and then figuring out how to stay in the game, the game between ventures, not only will you are you significantly more likely to succeed, because now it's just a case of which one are you going to succeed at, you know, um, but you've also got some tools in place that allow you to mitigate that fear or that or the fear of failing um, and then be able to demonstrate courage in the face of it. So what would you say has been kind of your worst point and where you sort of wanted to just give it all up after you've gone full time since 2011, I think you said? Any day ending in why? 
<laughs> let's let's be honest. This this game is hard. Okay, if this were easy, um, entrepreneurship and creating successful, successful ventures is about the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. Probably apart from parenting. Um, I do have four kids, so I know how hard that is. That is, um, but. You know, by comparison, most of the rest of the stuff that we confront in our life is easy. If this, if entrepreneurship were easy, everyone would be doing it. They won't. They aren't. Typically, about one to three percent of the general adult population are what I would consider to be real entrepreneurs. And I don't mean, you know, there's a lot of people out there that that, that are aspiring, that they want to do something. You know, some people will call them entrepreneurs, but I'm I'm talking about the people that are actually prepared to get their hands dirty, to put their money where their mouth is, and to actually build something, to risk, to strive, to challenge. So there's not a lot of us. You know, in Australia, we've got 10 million adults, so it would be, you know, 100 to 300,000 people in Australia probably are really genuinely entrepreneurs. Um, and I want to touch on that. It's, it's some, on your previous question, which I sort of circle around. Um, it's really, really hard to find those people. So sometimes your audience or your tribe, you can't find them or you can't advertise to them. So one of the one of the great things is, you know, if you can create lots of great content that makes it easy for your audience to find you, um, and that was sort of a part answer to, to a previous question. I think that's a really, really useful tool. Most of the, the great entrepreneurs in Australia, they're not at meetups. They're not hanging out. They're actually in back rooms and back alleys and, you know, building stuff. They're doing, they're aspiring, they're, you know, they're creating, they're connecting, they're collaborating. Um, you know, you, so, they're, so they're a bit hard to find. You know, this stuff is tough. So the great ones are doing they're not talking about it, they're doing it. <laughs> That's good. I love the aspect of creating good content and then allowing lots of people who are looking for that kind of content to then in turn find you rather than you trying to pursue those people because it, it is difficult to, to know where, where they are and when they're looking. So. I- Look, that, I mean, that's a really, really powerful point, but it, tr- it plays true of most of your audience. Unless you're doing some sort of B2C e-commerce play, most of your audience is, is invisible to you. The people that are going to buy your product, if you're doing a uh, business-to-enterprise or business-to-business play, um, it's hard to find the people that are the decision-makers, who are the sponsors and the champions that are going to curate the process through to the, to the process of acceptance and buying. They're invisible to you. So I don't think you can easily advertise to them. It's a bit like trying to find investors for your startup. You know, most investors, the ones that you want to work with, are invisible. The, so so I, I think it's about creating stuff that people want to buy so there's less selling and there's more buying, more engaging. So it's about creating more value. And this is where we come back to the concept of the minimum lovable product. You've got a really, really good product and you put it in the hands of 10 people and they say that's really cool and so they then use it and pay for it and they share it. The people that you're trying to get it into the hands of are probably the friends of the of, of the people that of your frontier audience. But if you alienate your frontier audience with your content or your product or your value proposition, you'll never get to that second layer. You'll never get the virality built in, whether it's in content or product or software as a service, as a service or a, you know some sort of back-end technical offering or whatever. Um, the people that you want to reach are easiest reached um, from your frontier audience, you know, um, and they'll then share and tell other people and they'll then share and tell other people the people you want to reach, the ones that you can't easily advertise to. You know, I can't take out a Facebook ad um, or Google ad or, you know, Twitter ads or whatever else 
and say, experienced professionals, come and join me. I just, I just can't reach the small enough audience. And with your offering, neither can you. And this podcast is a good example. You know, you can advertise it all you like, but, but in fact, the way that it gets, um, uh, the way that you reach a bigger audience is people say, hey, listen, I've heard this great, cool podcast. Um, you want to listen to it? Check it out. And that, it's that word of mouth that you get when people love what you do. And when that passion comes through in your voice, for example, Davis, um, that's, that's how you build audiences and tribes. Now, you, you just reminded me, I wanted to ask you, how do you um, find your voice? You've mentioned before in other settings where we've met before, and, and you mentioned it today, you, you took you 12 months to find your voice. I know we're, we're coming to the top of the hour here, but just um, walk me through very briefly. How do you find your voice? I'm not sure I've got the answer to the question, but what I can tell you is that I started blogging for about 12 months and I'd written 42 articles and I didn't, and I was using Blogger or uh, I think at the time, and I didn't have a single subscriber. <laughs> not one person had actually ever bothered to subscribe to the stuff I was writing to. So I think that's a reasonably good indicator that at that point that I hadn't found my voice. But but I, I switched to another platform on LinkedIn, and then I, I published um, uh, published a, a post around advisory boards. So I, I felt like I'd sort of learned my craft by that stage. Um, and then the first article, I think it got viewed 178 times. And then the next article um, I shared got viewed about 250 times. And the next article got viewed about 350. So I changed platforms. That that certainly helped, which which was useful for the virality and the shareality. But I think I found my voice because once I started publishing on another platform, I was getting comments and feedback. And I was able to incorporate the learnings or the lessons from what other people were saying about what they liked or didn't like into that so I knew that I was close and I had to circle around a little bit more. It's actually the feedback that helps you find it. I think people are saying, this resonates with me, this is valuable, here's my experience about it, um, here's what I've learned and discovered, and I think it's the feedback that tells you that you've nailed it. I think, I think you can feel it from the way that people are writing the comments. Does that resonate with you, Davis? Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. I, I think that makes total sense. You've, you've got to go through that process. You're going to get the feedback and then you're going to align yourself with that and then provide more and more of that and then it kind of snowballs together. Yeah. Um, Daniel, what's been your biggest breakthrough moment in your business? Hundreds, many. Um, you know, that they're, when you've tried and failed as often as I have, you know, there are significant, significant moments. But, um, so I've probably had around 400 good business ideas in my lifetime. I've probably investigated and researched 50 of the, yeah, 50, maybe 60 of those, and I've built 15 or 16. Um, there is no one significant moment. It's, it's about knowing that everything that you've done up until now, has been the learning or the experience you need in order to succeed from where you are at this point in your life. Everything you've done matters. All the research, all the planning, all the connections, all the collaboration you've done matters. And so I think my biggest, my biggest moment or revelation, if you want to call it that, is that you are now becoming the person you're always meant to be. You just have to choose to decide now to become that person. And everything you've done in your life has been part of the process of learning to this point. Everything that you've done till now matters. Nothing has been wasted. You just don't know how to apply it yet. So for me, the um, the, the biggest single breakout I think was you know recognizing that all your background matters. 
all your experience, all your connections, all your history, all your learnings, all your failings, all your successes, um, your interactions with people, your family relationships, all of that is experience for the path to success in you becoming the entrepreneur you're always meant to be. I think that's amazing. And for, for everybody listening, I think it's important to, to take hope from that because sometimes we feel we've gone through obstacles in life and things that might have pulled us down at some points and um, we might be disappointed or, or down and out, but it all matters. I love that nothing is wasted, no preparation is wasted, so it's all part of who we're becoming and um, it all adds up to who we then um, pursue to, to how we pursue our dreams. Um, Daniel, how do you rank the next um, philosophies of life or, or um, words, if you like, Faith, fun, family, finances, friendships. Oh, uh, so faith is is critical. I think I think you've got to have a belief. Um, and I'm not necessarily talking about a religious faith, but I think a, a faith in a life, um, and in a belief that there is an order to things, that there's a reason, a purpose, um, and you can still have that faith whether you're a, a, a Catholic, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Muslim, whether you're an atheist or an ag- agnostic. Um, Faith that there is order and purpose is, is, um, I think, really, really, really critical. Um, family uh, comes next, and, and in fact, we're, we're going to be doing a little uh, Q&A style uh, video program shortly, which is around building your venture around life and family as a prototype for a series, and, and I think that's exactly what it is. You don't fit your family in around your venture, it's the other way. You fit your venture in around, uh, you, fit, if, if it, you fit your venture in around family, not the other way around. Um, so around finances, yeah, I mean, you can't do what you need to do without, you know, without money. Um, I don't care how good you are, you know, you're going to have to figure out how to earn an income and, and, you know, fund your venture and become the first investor in it and you set aside your family resources, you know, that, that law number three and two, never bet more than you can afford to lose and figure out how you stay in the game between ventures. You got to get that right, you know. You can't blame anyone for that. That's your responsibility. And if you're not, if you're failing in that space, then, fix it. I'm happy to give the soft advice, but I'm often, you know, when I'm talking counselling with entrepreneurs, I'm often quite strong as well. If there's some stuff that they've got in their life that's holding them back or hurting them, um, I'll tell them to fix it. We all want the truth. So I'm never, I'll, I might sugarcoat it, but I'm still going to give you the truth. You know, if you've got a problem with your financial situation, fix it. <laughs> I don't know that you can ever find balance in your life, but all of those factors and characteristics that you've just described, I think you've got to get them in harmony. Entrepreneurs, by nature, are out of balance. It's how we live our lives. It's like a seesaw. You know, the, the roundabout's okay, but the seesaw's much more fun. Um, and, in fact, if you're in balance on a seesaw, there's no fun in that. It's, it's actually the, it's the ups and downs of the motion, but you can be in harmony on a seesaw. You know, you can be operating in such a way as the ups and downs are part of the thrill and still be in harmony and completely out of balance. So you are, you are allowed to be out of balance as an entrepreneur. In fact, it's how we live our lives. But try and find some harmony between all the elements of your life. Mm, love that. Daniel, give us a 30-second look into a day in your life today versus a day in your life back in 2011. Okay. So 2011, I was broke, virtually homeless. Um, I was unemployable. Um, I'd lost um, a, a major family relationship and I'd been a full-time dad for five years and suddenly no, it wasn't. Uh, my political turmoil, p- political career was in turmoil or was shredded. Two ventures that I had was failed and, you know, I was down and out and lost. 
that's me of 2011. I had nowhere to go. I didn't know what to do. I, you know, all my social circles had been destroyed, and I was, to all intents and purposes, on the scrap heap of life. My life today is significantly better than that. I'm inspired and, and enthused in ways that you can't imagine. I work with clever entrepreneurs. I invest in wonderful businesses. I work with inspiring and inspired founders, uh, the colleagues and compatriots that I've and, and relationships that I've developed in the startup ecosystem are, are just amazing. Um, so I've got, you know, 65 mentors and advisors that are all champing it a bit ready for me to release my program because they all want to work with me in a way that it's just a dream come true. You know, I want to work with really clever and passionate connected people who've got areas of specialty in themselves and they value their relationship with you because you can help them get to where they're trying to get to in a collaborative and engaging and transparent manner. So I, I lived in a world of scarcity, and now I live in a world of abundance is the only way to describe it. And, and, that's, and that's what, for each and every one of your audience, I wish for, is to move from how I can do this to who can I take on the journey with me. And it's that abundance mentality, that thinking about keeping your eye on the vision, is the thing that's going to hold them through those hard, dark times. Daniel, we've touched on a, a number of things. You've touched on your political career. You've touched on um, how you were completely down and out, um, and now you're investing um, money into people's businesses, etc. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into all of that, but I really want to just hear, what are investors looking for in a nutshell? Uh, so I, I, um, I've been circling around this answer now for probably three, four years and in fact I wanted to know the answer so if, if I may insert a conversation I don't think I, I know what I do know is I know how to ask questions so I know what I'm looking for my ethos as an investor is I invest in people I don't look for teams or audiences or idea. I like traction, by the way, um, but I typically invest in people because, for me, that's the thing that I can have most influence over and I can support and encourage and inspire. And the founder, the right founder, is the one that attracts the team to them. They build the right offering, they engage the audience, and they go on to succeed. Um, I don't invest in, in technologies or ideas because... It's 99% execution and 1% inspiration. That's just how it plays. Um, but I didn't know the answer. That was from, that was true for me and how I invest, but that's not necessarily true for other investors. So I wanted to put together a format or a concept that would allow other investors to actually share their experiences with me. So um, I'll share a sneak peek with you. We've actually shot the first two pilot episodes of a, a new video product that we've got coming out called Dinner with Investors, where we actually sit down and talk over dinner about what it is that investors care about and are interested in. And I, I'm sure we can probably put a link on your landing page, Davis, but um, I, I, what I wanted to do was to get that message, that, that very question that you're asking, what matters to investors? What do they care about? What are they interested in? I don't know the answers to that for everybody. So I thought, well, why not ask them? And then why not air that as a, as a great piece of content and, you know, maybe some good entertainment too, so that aspiring founders like I was can actually discover the answers to those questions from many different types of investors. Um, so we've already shot the first two pilots. Um, we'll be going to air with those uh, very shortly. We're about just organising a crowdfunding campaign to, um, to get the next 10 episodes to air. Um, and, you know, ideally, don't, don't ask me that question. Uh, you'll be able to watch the show in a couple of weeks and, and actually find out what um, we've already got 24 investors lined up to be on the show. So, you know, plus a couple of overseas ones that'll be really interesting. So, you know, you'll be able to get that answer from as many different types of investors as you can possibly imagine. And there are many. 
Awesome, awesome. I love that answer. And I have seen some of your marketing material around that on LinkedIn, etc. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely link it up in the show notes and um, look forward to, to checking those out. Absolutely. Um, Daniel, do you invest in mentors? Um, and if yes, who are some of those for you today? Um, how do you mean invest in mentors, Davis? Um, do, do you mean do I invest in mentors that work with other people or do I invest in my mentors? Your mentors, personally. Oh. Absolutely. I, I have a uh, I have a mentorship bill which would choke a horse at the moment. I believe in paying for good mentorship. Sometimes that's in cash, sometimes it's in equity. I think you have to. But I think a mentor is not somebody who uh, puts an invoice down on the table for you um, as soon as you've had a conversation. I think great mentorships, people have a responsibility as, as successful entrepreneurs to pay forward that. But then if you succeed on the advice or the guidance that you get from great mentors, then you have an obligation to pay that back. So there's a, you know, there's a little bit of quid pro quo in this. Mentorship isn't, does not come with an invoice. What it does is it comes with a reward. Mm, I love that. Awesome. What are the best two books that are must reads for entrepreneurs in your mind? I have, I have to say that is the world's greatest question. So I have a book list. I've got, um, probably 500 books um, that I've read throughout my life. Um, and well, sorry, I've probably read over a 1,000 books, but I've probably got about another 500 that I've kept on my book bookshelf, and I give away books like you wouldn't believe. But the two books that stand out for me that you should read, everyone should read, if you haven't read these two, one's an old one and one's fairly recent. So Napoleon Hill wrote a wonderful book, and I think he wrote it in about 1942, and it's called Think and Grow Rich. And he was mentored and inspired by some of the world's great entrepreneurs of, of you know, the last 200 years. Um, so if you haven't read Think and Grow Rich, or if you, even if you had, go back and read it. It's one of, it's still, you know, 70 years or 80 years after it's been written, it's still one of the most relevant books ever written about how to inspire your mind. The second thing, because everything you need to know to, in order to succeed is already in your head, and that book will help you get it out. Now, the second book that I love is called Blue Ocean Strategy. Uh, and I'm trying to think of the name of the author, and I think his first name is Daniel. But that's the second book because that'll show how to get the stuff that's out in your mind out in the right way. Um, so most people want to create a great venture, but you know, there's a lot of competition. If you're a really great entrepreneur, there is no such thing as competition. It doesn't exist. There are only people that you can cooperate or collaborate with in different ways. But if you're in a blue ocean, there are no other boats around you. If you're in a red ocean or in a harbour filled with, filled with other other boats, then you know, then you're just playing in the wrong game. Um, you haven't thought it through hard enough about what it is that you're trying to do and who you're trying to help. So I encourage you to read those two books. Um, I, I reckon it's worth putting a link on the landing page because they're just probably the two best books I've ever read in history. There is a third. I'm not, you know, and some people will will disagree with me on this. I think you probably should read the New Testament. Um, if you haven't read that recently, you know, it's still a couple of thousand, it's a couple of thousand years old and it's probably still the biggest, most read book ever. Um, it's, it's interesting because, um, 
the bloke featured in the New Testament only had an audience of about 12, but he was really good at sharing a message. So he shared his message with about 12 people and they shared it with the, with a few more. And, you know, that's, you want to talk about virality? <laughs> that's, that's the way to go viral. You know, <laughs> forget about having a, you know, a hundred thousand Twitter followers. Uh, you know, that, that bloke, if he had a Twitter account now, it, 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 you know, it would have broke the internet. So, um, you know, I, I say that flippantly, but, but I, I I think there's a lot of wonderful truths in that. Even if you're not a person of faith, uh, you can have faith um, because the challenges that they talk about in that sort of thing are still the same challenges we talk about uh, in today's world. You know, how do I engage and connect and share and collaborate and work with people in a, you know, when other people are trying to steal your lunch? It's a pretty good book. It's probably the third one I'd add to my list. Absolutely, and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, that's amazing. What is um, the best way, Daniel, for people to connect with you today? Oh, LinkedIn, by far and above. I probably get maybe, uh, I would say, somewhere in the region of about 300 new followers a day and probably about 50 new connections a day on LinkedIn. If you've got a great idea and you're not sure what to do next and you've been circling around the problems of your life for, for 10 or 15 years, I can point you in the right direction. So by all means, feel free to reach, to reach out to me. Um, I may not invest in your idea, but... See, I love investing in founders. I love investing my time. Um, I love investing my skills, my knowledge, my expertise, and I love connecting with your people that are, that might help you on the next step, step of your journey or at least giving you some insight. LinkedIn is my thing. You can follow me on Twitter if you like, but, but LinkedIn's the place where you'll get most of my best stuff. So find me there. Awesome, and we'll put um, all those details in the show notes. Now, Daniel, before I ask my last question, I just want to acknowledge you for everything you're doing in the marketplace for all the lives that you're impacting and for you pursuing your dreams and even for pouring out your words of wisdom here with um, the business journalist community and inspiring us to love what we do never bet more than we can lose and to stay in the game between deals and uh, in this show today we just want to thank you and uh, now for my last question Daniel when all is said and done what legacy do you want to leave and be remembered for and tell us why it's the thing that drives great entrepreneurs what is the legacy you leave behind? And, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. I think the only thing that matters around legacy is those that remember and loved you, the ones that you made an impact upon and the ones that you helped. I think it doesn't matter about how much money you make. It doesn't matter about how many you know yachts you have or can water ski behind or all of that. Um, I think it's about... That the people you engage and connect with and share with and the people that remember you when you're gone and you leave behind. You know, I have a big vision for helping 10,000 entrepreneurs to succeed. Um, and I do that because I want to see members of my tribe be able to leave a legacy themselves for helping their audiences. Uh, by the way, that's the start of my vision, not the end of it. Um, I've got a much bigger vision in mind around a collaborative, connective economy. Um, we won't share that today, but I think your ability to touch and engage and, and your legacy you leave behind is not in buildings and in monuments. It's who you reached out to, who you connected with, who you shared and, and who you helped along the way. I think that's ultimately our legacy as people. Did we leave the world a better place than we came to it? And we did, did we do that by touching people? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for hanging out with me and Daniel today hope you had as much fun as I did, but more importantly, my hope is that you can get your hopes up that you are good enough to chase your dreams. Remember to head on over to businessjournals.com for all the show notes. Just type in Daniel in the search bar and his show notes will pop up with everything we talked about today. So that's businessjournals.com. 
and Daniel has written many good pieces of articles. Um, check him out on LinkedIn. You can also find Daniel at thatstartupguy.com.au for some of his special deals and um, some of his special materials. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the Business Journal's podcast today and for sharing your story with us. For that, we are grateful. You are a true business general. Thank you for having me, Davis. I've enjoyed being part of the show and I'm looking forward to hearing some of the other following episodes from other people as well. Hey, what's up, Business Journals family? Thank you for joining me and for listening to the Business Journals podcast. Connect with me at Davis Mutabwa. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-U-T-A-B-W-A. Connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and you can certainly find me at our podcast blog, businessjournals.com. And while you're there, remember to access all the show notes, a ton of free resources, killer training, and so much more. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Ciao.